powerful, powerful story this morning. A little bit about my family. As Chad told you, I work full-time for the SBTC, but also travel and, and preach, and I've done that since I was 18 years old. And uh, I have a wife. Her name's Rachel, and we'll, be, we'll celebrate our seven-year anniversary in September. And I have a white, we have a white little toy poodle dog named Cy. And he's a dog that a man can appreciate because he lives to hunt and chase down and kill squirrels in the backyard. So that's my dog. And we also have a one-year-old little boy named Graham. And so I'm a new dad. So any of you wise, experienced dads out there, I need all the advice that, that I can get. Uh, he, he is mobile. We celebrated his first birthday uh, just last week. And uh, the two things that I spend a lot of time doing, he's obsessed with sports. Praise the Lord, right? And uh, he's a big Cowboys fan. But also... Also, I spent a lot of time trying to get him out of the dog food, to keep from eating dog food in the dog bowl. Uh, and we have to keep it elevated because my dog, and now because of that, my dog is starving now. So pray for him and uh, to keep him out of plugs. And uh, But other than that, I'm just enjoying fatherhood. And so they're at home and he's at home and uh, he's doing push-ups, praying for y'all today. And uh, so that, that's my family and just live in Dallas, Texas. And, and uh, so good to be here. As we dive in uh, to Mark chapter 9, uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I was born in Dallas, but I grew up in Louisiana, so that makes me crazy. Uh, and I'm a big LSU fan. Anybody, any LSU fans in the house? Uh, Dallas Cowboy fans? I heard some hissing. That must have been from Texas A&M or something. Sorry we beat y'all the last six years. Uh, but uh, so, so that's me. And grew up in the middle of nowhere, Louisiana, and moved to Dallas, uh, you know, when I was 18 years old to go to Bible college to Criswell. And I've been there ever since. I've not left Texas. Texas is God's country, right? So Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 14 through 29, the title of my message today is When Darkness Wins. Now, being a big Cowboys fan... I know there's a lot, there's probably more Houston Texans fans in here, I would assume, than Cowboys fans, right? But I'm a big Cowboy fan living in Dallas. And sports radio is crazy. I don't really know how Houston sports radio is, but Dallas Cowboy fans are really negative. If you'll notice that, even when we're winning, the, the radio, the sports radio, as I listen to every day on my way to work, on Monday morning after a Cowboys game, it's just chaotic. People are whining. People are griping. Even after we win, we're, we're probably one of the most negative fan bases about our own team. But when there's a loss, oh, it's, it's a tragedy. Even if, even if it's week one, when there's a lo- Cowboys loss, the sky is falling and Houston is rejoicing. It's every Monday morning. And so they always try to figure it out. The sky is falling. It's a crisis. Where do we go wrong? Fire our coach. It can even be after the first preseason game. We lost. What are we going to do? And so the gripe every year is, is, is how do the Cowboys not win when they have all this talent? How do they not win? What, what do they do? And everybody's solving the problem on the, on the radio. How did we lose? It's a hilarious thing they're doing impersonations of Jerry Jones. It's funny. So today I want to answer the question, what do we do in our culture when it looks like darkness is winning? What do we do when darkness looks like it's prevailing? Especially in the cases of these tragedies that we've seen in our public schools and the tragedies we've seen around our nation. What do we point to? So in Mark chapter 9, the gospel marks all about Jesus, the Son of God, and who he is and, and what it means to follow him. But what we see in Mark 9, which is really interesting, 
is we see people's reactions to Jesus. There's three reactions that you see to Jesus in Mark 9 when he begins his ministry and he begins to show people who he is and he begins to teach. And The first reaction that you see is that people are wild and people are astonished and people follow him and people run to him broken and asking him to heal them or asking him to cast out demons. And we see disciples following him and him calling people to himself. You see all in astonishment. That, that, that is a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus wants people... To see that he's the son of God and he wants people to follow him and he wants people to be in awe of him and to be astonished at who he is. The second one is indifference. You see people that say, oh, this, this is just, you know, the son of Mary and Joseph. This is, it's just common to them. This, this can't be happening. And the third reaction is, you see anger. You see people that hate him. You see people that reject him. And that's, that's exactly what we see in our culture is those three responses to Jesus. And that's the three responses that you see in this room. You're indifferent, you're in awe and astonishment, or you're maybe, you're antagonistic. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. But we see a chaotic situation happen here in Mark chapter 9. So let, let's read it together, and starting in verse 14. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. So set the context here. In the first part of chapter 9, we see Jesus take James, Peter, and John up on a mountain. And he unveils his glory, is what it said. Previously, it says that Jesus took him up on the mountain and he was transfigured and his clothes became dazzling white and no launder on earth could whiten him. And in this situation, it says Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. So there's this big moment. And then Peter sticks his foot in his mouth and says, Hey, is it good for us to be here? Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because they did not know what to say since they were terrified. And then it says, A cloud appeared and overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So there's this big moment where Jesus unveiled his glory and showed his, these disciples who he was. But then there's another group of disciples at the bottom of the mountain and they walk in to a chaotic situation full of drama, just like a lot of us do when we walk into a family reunion. We all have experienced that. But he walks into this place, watch this, and they came down the mountain. It said they saw a large crowd, and there were scribes disputing with them. And when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And Jesus asked them in verse 16, What are you arguing with them about? In verse 17, Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it sizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And he replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately... It threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground. He rolled around. He foamed at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, 
Everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the right hand, raised him up, and he stood up, and after he'd gone into the house, House, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he, t- he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. So we see a situation where it appears like darkness is winning. We see the disciples who, just in chapter 6, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to minister. So he had just given them this authority just a few chapters before. So Jesus takes these three disciples up the mountain and unveils his glory to show that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Comes back down and finds himself in a situation where there's a boy who has a spirit and the disciples are trying to cast it out. And they're supposed to have authority, but they cannot cast it out. And so Jesus comes to solve the situation. Jesus encounters the situation. But what's interesting here is people might expect Jesus to to go ahead and rebuke the demon, to go ahead and take care of the demon, because you might think, well, that's the problem, because it is a problem, it's an issue. But Jesus first deals with something. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? He rebukes the unbelief of the disciples. He rebukes the unbelief of the disciples. So this passage talks about unbelief. What do we do when it appears like darkness is winning? What happened when it appeared like darkness is winning in, in this situation, in this passage? Here's the first thing, and you can write it down. When darkness prevails, there is unbelief in God's people. When darkness prevails, there's unbelief in God's people. You see, these disciples are caught up in unbelief. They're caught up in trying to deal with this situation in their own power. They're caught up. They had just received an authority, but it's apparent they're not using that authority. And he rebukes their faith before he rebukes the demon. He rebukes their lack of faith before he rebukes the demon, you unbelieving generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. You see, we see what it takes to follow Jesus. And that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus brings the kingdom of God. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and we see immediately he goes and he begins to push back darkness by casting out demons, by healing diseases, by teaching with authority. And then he calls these disciples to follow him. And he gives them the same authority to do it because the disciple of Jesus is supposed to push back darkness in the world in which they live. Jesus has already won the war But as we live this life, there's battles to fight. The kingdom of darkness has been defeated. It's on its way out, and that's the good news this morning. But we still live in the world where there's battles to be fought. And the reason why Jesus just doesn't take you to heaven after he saves you is because he leaves you here to push back darkness. And the ways that we push back darkness to start with is our faith in who Jesus Christ is and and, and our prayer and our engagement with him. 
That's what we see in this passage. But we, we see the disciples are stuck in unbelief. So the unbelief he's addressing here is not the belief that, well, I just don't believe Jesus exists or I just don't believe that Jesus is the disciples. It's the tragedy that there's unbelief in the people who are supposed to know better. Why do we see darkness seem to win battles in our world in advance? Because there's unbelief in God's people. It's an unbelief where you know who Jesus is, you know better, but you're just stuck in, in, in where you just don't believe that he can do anything. Where he's just used to you. One of the worst spiritual states this morning that you can be in is, is when the holy things to you become common. When you slip into a place where you're supposed to know better, but you slip into a place where you're no longer in awe of Jesus, you're no longer astonished by him, and you no longer believe that he can act and move into your world. You're just kind of stuck in a religious rut. That's my story. I grew up, my dad's a pastor. We got any preacher's kids in the house. My dad is a pastor. At a, he was a pastor at a small Baptist church in Louisiana. I was there every time the doors were open. If there was a sem- we had a cemetery next to the church. And when they had meetings about that, I had to be there. It sounds exciting, right? So I grew up in the church. But I grew up knowing about Jesus, but not really knowing Jesus intimately. I grew up going to church services acknowledging Jesus. Yes, I believe that he exists but not really engaging Jesus, not being in awe of him, not being astonished. I remember sitting in church services growing up and looking at my watch and not wait, couldn't wait till my dad got done talking so I could go home and watch the Cowboys. Where you kind of slip into a, a mode of unbelief, and that was me. And I grew up around the people that went to church that acknowledged Jesus, that wanted Jesus to get them out of hell and bring them to heaven, but that was it. That's the kind of Christianity I grew up in, and I think that's the kind of Christianity that we see in our culture to where you go and you acknowledge Jesus, but there's no engagement of him. You're not in awe of him. You're not astonished. And what really changed my life, the reason why I stand before you today is I was in my living room in 1998, and I was doing whatever 12-year-old did in 1998. I was watching wrestling. And something happened that night. The Holy Spirit did a work in my life because I overheard a conversation that my dad was having on the phone with the person and he was sharing the gospel with them. Who Jesus was. He's a passionate man uh, after Jesus Christ and he was sharing Christ. Who Jesus was, his death, burial, and resurrection. That he's the son of God that he raised from the dead that if we repent and put our faith in him, if we repent and believe, we, we'll, we'll, we, we'll be saved. You know, we'll, we can have a relationship with Jesus and follow after him and I I'd heard that a thousand times growing up, but that night, supernaturally, it went from my head down to my heart. And I went from just knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. To know Jesus doesn't mean to just know facts about Jesus or just to know theology in your head. But knowing Jesus, is, it's an intimate friendship. That's what the word means in the Bible. It's an intimate friendship to where you, you know him and you're passionate about him. And you can say, just like the song said, that Jesus is mine. That's what happened. I began to say, acknowledging Jesus. This is who I he- hear about growing up. To knowing Jesus. To really knowing him and being astonished. And we see people here in this passage that are supposed to know better, but they're stuck in unbelief. Maybe that's you today. You've slipped into a mode of unbelief. 
Just as Jesus rebuked the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, it says, hey, you're checking the boxes. You know the right theology. You're fighting against false teachers. All that's good. But he said, this one thing I have against you. You've left your first love. See, what was the problem right here in this situation? That the disciples at the bottom of the mountain didn't really understand the Jesus that was at the top of the mountain that unveiled himself to his disciples. You see, they saw Jesus, of course, in his humanity, fully human, but they saw him show himself that he's fully God by his miracles. But they weren't up there with him when he unveiled his glory. To show that he was the king from the beginning. That he's the king over kings and he's the Lord over lords. So what comes to your mind today when you think about Jesus? Growing up, I used to picture Jesus before I really came to know him. The Jesus of the scriptures like the picture that was on the wall at our church. Maybe you had that picture on a church that you grew up going to. Or maybe at your grandmother's house where it was a picture with Jesus who had long flowing blonde hair and blue eyes. We as humans, sometimes it's hard for us to comprehend spiritual realities, so we get it wrong sometimes a lot in our paintings, right? I remember going to my grandmother's house growing up, and I love my grandmother. We were best friends. She used to feed me whatever I wanted. She would spoil me. But I hated to spend the night there, and this is why. Because I would sleep on our couch below this scary painting. And it was a painting of this nine-foot-tall angel. She was in a dark room. She had like, she was really pale. And she was playing a piano in a dark room. With these little naked baby angels flying around her. That picture would terrify me. Because we, a lot of times, we, we can't comprehend spiritual reality. So what our brains do is we picture Jesus like one of us. Even if we claim to be Christ followers. The picture that I had of Jesus growing up was one that was in the coloring books in our Bible studies and Sunday school classes. Where he was wearing a robe and a sash, petting a lamb. Everybody, everybody colored that picture growing up? He's petting a lamb, or it's the picture in Scripture where he was blessing the children. That's what I had growing up. That's what, I, that's what I pictured in my mind. And you see, these disciples that are trying to deal with this boy who has a demon... That, that's what they, they picture Jesus in his humanity. But how should we really picture Jesus? I asked a ninth grade guy a couple years ago in a McDonald's the same question. What comes to your heart and mind when you think about Jesus? I asked him this. I said, if Jesus were to, were to physically allow us to see him in this McDonald's, how would you respond by the picture in your heart and mind? He said this. He literally, it's an old t-shirt. I don't even know if anybody wears this t-shirt anymore. But he's, he, and he's current. And he says, I would say, what's up, Jesus, my homeboy? Because our minds naturally go to thinking about Jesus as being one of us. Of, of treating Jesus as a mascot and not a monarch. Monarch. Is Jesus a king? Or is he just a mascot to you? I said by the scripture's definition of who Jesus is now, of who he really is, unveiled in all of his glory, seated at the right hand of God as King of kings, Lord of lords. And this is what they wanted 
What Jesus wanted these disciples and these people to understand who he was, that he's the Son of God, he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The reality is this morning that if Jesus were, were to allow us, because he's present with us, but if he were to allow us to physically see him with our own eyes in this room, we wouldn't say, what's up, Jesus, come sit with me. We would all, including myself, fall flat on our faces as though we were dead. It would be the most awe-inspiring, beautiful, scary sight that we've seen with our own eyes times a billion. That's who Jesus is. He wants people to see that he is, he is not just like one of us, that he is the king over kings, that he is the Lord over lords, that, he, that he's the king of the world, that, that he shines brighter than the sun, and that he, he came and he handled darkness and he can push back darkness. He defeated death, buried in the grave, Died on a cross, buried in a grave, rose from the dead. He wants to see, he wants us to see him for who he is. He's not in this humanity anymore. He just wrapped himself in human flesh to come and reveal himself and die for the sin of the world and to raise from the dead. I love the passage where Paul describes when he saw him. When he was Saul before he became Paul, he says, I was on my way, you know, to persecute more Christians in Acts 9 and 20. But it said, Jesus, there's a light that shone around me brighter than the sun. And there was a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the worst, first words out of his mouth, I love it. He said, who are you, Lord? How do you picture Jesus today? Because what Jesus did was, and what he wanted was these disciples to run to him. He wanted them to see him in all of his authority. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He wanted the disciples to live in the authority that they had just a few chapters ago, but they've forgotten. You see, this kind of unbelief that he's talking about in God's people is the, belief, is, is the unbelief where we forget who Jesus is and what he done for us. Because we are easy. It is easy to us, for us, to forget who Jesus is and to slip in a mode of unbelief. Not an unbelief where you're, you're lost and you don't know him, but an unbelief of where you should know better, but you're just kind of in the routine of life, in the routine of church, in the routine of religion. I remember when I was a kid, I'd go to my grandpa's house and he was a man's man. He, 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 he did carpentry all day and then he would farm all night. He just liked to work for fun, wore overalls every day, was buried in his overalls and his National Rifle Association hat. He, he lived backwoods, back, 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 backwoods, Louisiana. But he was a man's man. The dude would grind his own cornmeal with his hand. I don't know if, I think that's a lost art. He, he would grow his own vegetables and everything was homemade. He could fix anything and he could do anything and outside of his property... He had this big dump truck we would always play around and throw rocks at. And... But I remember I was playing with my cousins, and this big, fat water moccasin runs under our feet. And it's just sitting right there. A little, and that's a scary sight for an adult, probably even more now. And what do, I, what do we do in that moment? Did I, did I pick up the snake and look at the snake and say, You big ugly water moccasin why are you so poisonous why are you so dangerous why are you here I know I didn't sit there and yell at the snake what did I do I knew my grandfather was inside of the house with all my uncles so I ran to my grandpa 
And I told him the situation. And I remember him and the other men took every shotgun in the house. <laughs> and they went outside. It was like 10 of them for one snake. And went out there and took care of business. I think with the, the mistake that the body of Christ makes in our culture, and we see it displayed on social media, and we see it on Facebook especially. I know students, you're not on Facebook because your grandmother and mom is always the first one to like all your statuses. You're on Instagram, I get that. But we see it displayed on social media that when there's darkness rears its ugly head in our culture, when we see it appear like it's winning, when tragic evil situations happen, God's people usually run to Facebook or social media before we run to Jesus. We, we sit there and we blame darkness. I can't believe that they did this. Look what they're doing. And, and we point the finger at darkness. But here's the news. People that don't know Jesus act like people that don't know Jesus. And we want them to act like Christ followers. And we try to solve the problem. It's like we pray to Facebook. How many, how many of you have seen Vince on Facebook, right? Like Facebook's going to answer them back. But we spend all of our time venting on social media and arguing on social media rather than running to Jesus. Some of you might be here and you might be like this little boy who has just a dark bondage in your life. Darkness just has a hold on you. And who are you running to? And you need to know today that you can run to Jesus. Whatever darkness, you can run to Him. What are you running to other than Jesus Christ today when you face darkness? Because as we live in this life, we're going to come face to face with darkness. Because we live in a fallen, messed up world. So what do you do when you're faced with the kingdom of darkness? Who's out to steal, kill, and destroy you? Satan's like a, a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. He rebukes their unbelief before even dealing with the demon. You unbelieving generation, he says. So they brought the boy to him. And watch this. How does darkness respond to Jesus? We spend all of our time complaining about darkness. But what, what, how, does it, how does the kingdom of darkness respond? When the Spirit saw him, immediately it threw the boy into convulsions, fell to the ground, and rolled around foaming at the mouth. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into convulsions. How long has this been happening to him, Jesus asked. So all this is happening and Jesus is still asking questions. Some of you would be annoyed at this moment. I know I would. Just deal with it. Why are you asking me more questions? And Jesus asked the father from asked his father, but from childhood the father said, and many times it has thrown him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and it came it come out of him and never enter him again and then i came out shrieking it came out shrieking throwing him into convulsions and the boy became like a corpse so the people said well he's dead but jesus taking him by the hand raised him up and he stood up 
So Jesus shows complete domination over the, de- over the demonic. He shows complete domination over the spirit. That Jesus Christ, here's the good news today. If you're tortured by some form of darkness or sin or bondage in your life, know this, that Jesus Christ, the King over kings, the Lord of lords, he's sovereign over it. He's in control over it. And you can run to him today and he can readily handle it. But in the middle of handling this spirit, he has a conversation with the dad. And the dad shows a different kind of unbelief than the disciples. He shows a broken unbelief. Look at the unbelief of the dad. He's like, he's like, Jesus, can you help me if you can do anything? And Jesus is like, everything is possible for the one who believes. Come on, just believe. But the father says, I do believe, but I help my unbelief. Interesting. I do believe, but help my unbelief. You see, it was a broken unbelief. He goes, I want to believe in you, but, but I'm broken and, and, I, and I'm weak. And he says, I can't. Please help my unbelief. And that's when Jesus answers his prayer. It says, Jesus saw that it was gathered and he rebuked the unclean spirit in that moment. You know what? We're weak and we're frail. And we're going to fall into unbelief. But here's what Jesus does not want from us. What Jesus does not want from us is us to pretend like we have it all together because of the knowledge that we have of him. And to try to do it in our own power. What Jesus wants from us today is a broken unbelief. It's like, Jesus, we can't do anything, but you can. Jesus, I can't get myself out of this, but you can. Jesus, we can't push back darkness in our schools, but you can. And when we tell Jesus, I can't, but you can, that's when we see his power at work in our lives and in our culture. But sadly, we fall into the unbelief of the disciples to where... We go on our past knowledge. We go on our past experiences. We try to solve it all in our head and do it in our own power. We have so much theological knowledge available, accessible to us. We can read any kind of Christian book that we want today. We have all the Christian songs and the greatest preachers in the world live in the U.S. Seminaries, Bible colleges. But what I think happens is, and what's happened to me a lot of times in my life, we get puffed up on all this knowledge. And we're not desperate for Jesus Christ. And we start living on our knowledge. We start living on our past experiences. We start living on just where we go to church and just what we claim. And we don't live in the power of Jesus. And what Jesus always wants for us, he wants desperate, desperate, Jesus, I need you. If we're not in a desperate situation, that's a bad spiritual state because Jesus always wants us dependent on him. And watch this. He deals with it, raises the boy up. Then he goes back into the house. I love it. And he has a, says this. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive this out? What was the problem? What, they go back to the drawing board. What did we do wrong? Why couldn't we drive this out? And then Jesus says at verse 29, this cannot come out by anything but prayer. They got to a place in their life where they weren't engaging Jesus. They weren't pray, passionately praying to Jesus. They weren't, they, they weren't prevailing in prayer. They weren't, they weren't asking Jesus to do this. They just got to a place in their life where they were prayerless. And they forgotten the authority that they, Jesus had given them before when he was present with them. When darkness prevails, number two... 
there is a lack of prayer. When darkness prevails, there is a lack of prayer. Every great awakening that's ever happened in the world has started by people of prayer, by men and women that were mighty in prayer. Every, every missionary movement that we have today has, all, has always started with people that start just said, God, I need you. The first great awakening, look at the situation that happened. I'll read a little bit of it to you. That was going on and it had to do with schools in the first great awakening. Before the first great awakening happened, where God moved in a powerful way, millions of people came to Jesus, where the kingdom of God was displayed. Check this out. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, and he said these words, The church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. I know I've even heard people say that recently. The church is too far gone to be redeemed. In Voltaire, Everett, and Tom Paine echoed, it says, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. That's the situation they were in. And then take the liberal arts colleges at the time. Here's how wild the schools were, the colleges were. A poll was taken at Harvard, and they discovered that there was not one believer in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton. It was a, should be a much, much more evangelical place. And they discovered that there were only two believers in the student body. And only five that did not belong to the filthy speech movement of that day. And students rioted, it says. They held a mock communion at Williams College, and they put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. This is the 1700s, 1800s. There's nothing new under the sun, is it? It says they burned down the Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a, took a Bible out of the local Presbyterian church in New Jersey, and they burned it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they met in secret, like a communist cell, and they kept their minutes and codes so that no one would know. But how did the situation change? It came through a concert of prayer. There was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh named John Erskine who published a memorial pleading with the people of God, Scotland elsewhere, to unite in prayer for the revival of religion. And he's Jonathan Edwards. And the great theologian was so moved, he wrote a response which grew longer than a letter so that finally he published it in a book entitled A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of All of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth in Pursuant to Scripture and Its Promises and Prophecies. The united effort of God's people in extraordinary prayer pushes back darkness. You know what? God is sovereign. He can do it all by himself. God doesn't need us. But here's the beauty of it. God chooses to use us. And God has set it up that he moves based off the prayers of his people. The more we pray to him, the more we see his kingdom advance. That's how he set it up so we could be participants. He says this in John 14, teaching the disciples, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He has set prayers up that way so that when we pray to Him, we see Him move. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's not talking about material things where we say, God, I need a million dollars in my bank account. In the name of Jesus, I will do it. It's not talking about that. It's talking about spiritual advancement. The advancement of the kingdom. The pushing back of darkness. 
comes from the prayers of God's people. We saw this displayed. We, I direct student camps and where Chad has participated the last several years and preached our camps. And we had a camp uh, this summer at Glorietta, New Mexico, out in the mountains, and 1,600 students gathered. And the reason why I do student ministry and am involved in this, because I believe this fact that every time there's been a great awakening in history, God has used teenagers, young people, college students to bring that about, young adults. That's why it's so important that you're praying over schools today, because it's in this generation. That if there's going to be a great awakening, it's going to happen through the young generation. That's how God has always designed it. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. See how old people were when God did his greatest work. They were young. But they had the older generation pouring into them. It's always moved. That's why I'm excited. And so at Glorietta, we have 1,600 gathered. And we saw a huge movement of God, not just of emotion, but of a movement to where kids today, weeks later, are still being baptized. They're, the kids are beginning to lead their volleyball teams in Bible study and their football teams. Just reports are still coming in of the way God moved. It was just a huge harvest and huge response. And we have three of these camps, but the last one was special. And there was a breakout speaker who said, who was calling out some darkness that students carry into camp and just dealing with some issues because we have the, the student generation, the young generation carries a lot more darkness into camp and into places than you realize because of smartphones, because of just, I believe Satan has a full onslaught of this generation. But we saw God do things and he said, man, there's a difference in this camp. What do you point that to? Well, there's a 63-year-old mentor of mine. We call him Uncle Bobby. He's a professor of evangelism and pastor, Criswell College. But Uncle Bobby is a man of prayer. He's been my mentor since I was 17. And if you ever go on a trip with Uncle Bobby and stay in a hotel room with Uncle Bobby, you're going to be woken up at 3 or 4 a.m. with him on his knees praying and calling out to God and asking God to move. And Uncle Bobby volunteered to come to camp to just walk around in circles all day because he walks 10 miles a day. He can run faster than me and he's 63 years old. But you see him circling the camp all day long. That's all he's doing is praying. You point back to the 63-year-old man that's prevailing in prayer. You know, a lot of our prayers today are reactive. When Jesus calls us to pray proactively. Think about the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us in Matthew and Luke and he says... Our Father who's in heaven, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Right? Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our, us our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But the prayers of the church today are more reactive. We pray after somebody enters temptation. Pray for them, they've fallen into sin. We pray after somebody gets sick. We always pray after the fact. But we never pray for God's kingdom to come, to move on earth right now as it is in heaven. God wants you and I to experience his kingdom on earth right now. And that can only happen through prayer. We pray proactively rather than reactively. And I believe this, that sometimes we let Satan set the agenda of our prayer meetings. We pray in response to all the things that he already does, rather than praying proactively for the advancement of God's kingdom. When's the last time you got by yourself and you just prayed, not over your meal, 
Not, not just at church, not just before a sporting event, but you just got by yourself and you got on your knees and, and, you, and you just prayed proactively for God's kingdom to advance in your community, in your kid's life, in your life, in your family, just, just praying for God's kingdom to come and for darkness to push, be pushed back. When's the last time you did that? At 9 p.m. every night, I'm usually sitting in my living room and I'm always convicted because of my wife. Because about 9 p.m., she puts my son to bed. She rocks him first, puts him to bed. But I'm always drawn to go in as I'm watching Sports Center or something usually. But I'm always drawn because I can hear her voice echo out in the hallway of her praying proactively for, for God to, to rescue my son. Praying for him to be pure in his heart and mind, for God to send godly people into his life, and, and for God to, to, to save him at a, at a young age, and for God to use him. And she's praying proactively, proactively, proactively. And he's barely a year old, and I'm always drawn in. When's the last time you prayed proactively? What about our schools that are riddled with darkness? I believe the schools are the greatest mission field on the earth. Even, even if you homeschool your kids at home, you need to be wrapping your arms around your schools and your community because there's spiritual orphans there that need to be loved. And there's parents there that are lost in darkness. It's the greatest mission field. And Satan has reared his ugly head and had his way, as we've seen in our culture. But that's why God's people need to bring the kingdom of darkness there. Let's pray together today. Maybe you're here and the prayer that you need to pray is, is like the son, like this man, the father. God, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe the prayer that you need to pray is to, is to surrender to Jesus as your king and as your Lord. Maybe you're here and you're like, I just don't even have any faith that Jesus, I just, I've never given my life to him. I haven't put my faith in who he is. I haven't surrendered my life to him. I haven't repented and I haven't believed. I haven't turned my back on darkness. That's the prayer that you need to pray. I'm not, Garrett, you say, Garrett, I'm not a Christ follower today and I, I really want to become a Christ follower. And you ask, what do I need to do? It's simple. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Call out to him. Cry out to him. It's not a magical prayer that you pray. It's just praying to him, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm broken. I want a relationship with you. I believe you're the son of God who, who conquered. It says you came, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3. How did he do that? He came, wrapped himself in flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life. Raised the dead, healed diseases, taught with one who has authority, showed that he was God in the flesh, but he was stripped naked. He was beaten till no skin was left on his body, till his own mother couldn't recognize him, and he was nailed and executed on a cross. How did Jesus defeat darkness? He did it by dying on a cross for the sins of the world. He absorbed the sin of humanity in his body on the cross, past, present, and future. Buried in a grave, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. And you can run to him today. You can believe in him today because he wants you. He's ready to receive you. He wants you to become his son or to become his daughter, to become his child. If that's you, maybe you need to call out to him and say, Jesus, I want to be your follower. I want to be your disciple. I want you to be Lord of my life. It's just simple. Go to him in prayer right now. If that's you, I just want to pray for you right now. Just pray to him right now. If that's you and you say, God, God's dealing with me about that. That's me. I need to call out to Jesus. 
that you just look at me and just raise your hand. I need the Lord. I just want to pray for you. Just call out to him. That's the challenge. It's simple. Say, Jesus, save me. Help my unbelief. If that's you and you're calling out to Jesus, you can just simply, after you get done spending time with him, just simply fill out that connect card in front of you with the information. And a pastor will reach out to you and a pastor will meet with you and answer your questions. If that's you, just simply do that this morning. You say, I need Jesus. Just pray to him, fill out that connect card. Pastors will connect with you. Maybe you're here and you're like, I'm a believer, I'm a Christ follower, but I've slipped into the kind of unbelief of the disciples where I don't really believe Jesus is working and moving and I've just kind of gotten to a routine, I've kind of gotten into a rut and I just need to get out, I need to engage. I need to engage Jesus in prayer and I need to begin to engage the lost world with Jesus' mission in the kingdom of God. That's what he's called you to do. That's why your heart's beating while breath is in your lungs today. Because he's called you to push back darkness until you meet him, to make disciples, to share the gospel. If you're not engaging with that, you're not obeying Jesus. You're not being a disciple of Jesus. No matter how much information or Bible knowledge you're taking in today, you're, not simply, you're simply not being obedient. You say, Garrett, that's me. We're going to begin to sing this last song. The front's going to be open. If you need to pray, you do that. Whatever it is. You can get you can kneel where you're at or whatever. Just begin to engage Jesus. Intimacy leads to impact. He wants you to spend time with him and to engage him. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. God, I thank you that you're the king over kings, that you showed us who you are. And I thank you that we can run to you, that you're our, you've already won the war over sin, Satan, and death. Lord, there's battles still left to be fought, but the war has been won. And we celebrate that because of the resurre your resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you're seated and we can pray to you and we can engage you and we can go into our communities and love our schools and love people that don't know you because you have already won. And we can announce that victory to others. Thank you so much, Jesus. I pray you'd move during this time, Lord. I pray you'd have your way. I pray that the people at Grace Bible Church, Lord, will be people that are filled with the Spirit, they're mighty in prayer, and they're engaged in the community with the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. We can stand and sing and celebrate. You can come and pray. Let's, let's respond to today with song today.